Well, this is it. It's Friday, and everybody knows Friday. It's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and I am excited. And yes, if you can see me, this is my excited face to be with you once again, but not as excited as I am to talk with my partner, my friend, my buddy, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on in this week? It's February 2022. How's this yeah. week going for you? I've been, it's, it's good, man. Uh, the uh i'm getting too old too old to be on an ambulance chris it's becoming (laughs) no i take that back i'm not too old i'm just too fat and out of shape i'm still recovering physically from uh from three months of sitting in a chair uh but it's it's getting good it's getting good i've been productive lately bro i have i have actually been writing and cranking out stuff and and uh contributing working on some some fiction uh contributions to a couple of literary anthologies and and thinking of starting my own so you know um, you should do a you should do an article on the best ems leader that does a podcast with you and um you know maybe just a little bit about me okay can you be more could you be more specific well there's only one of us (laughs) so i mean it would be nice it'd be a nice little ode my birthday is coming up in march maybe you could do it as a present all right all right so an Kelly to Chris and that's right. An ode to my partner. So, uh, you know, you and I talk about it a lot. You've heard me say on this show that it is really important that, you know, as EMS providers, we have the best skills that we can. And I think that, and I've said it for a lot of years that our assessment skills are the most important skill that we have. It's not our intubation skills. If we can't get a tube, we could just manage it with a bag valve mask. You know, it's not our IV skills because if we need to, we could use an IO. But it really is our assessment skills because we've got to be able to make the determination of where we're going in our treatment, where we're going in our management. We've got to be able to know what protocol we're going to follow in our mind or or how we're going to treat people based on, you know, the presentation. And one of the things that you have heard me say throughout this show is I don't care what the patient is presenting. If it's just the mildest of patient, you need to listen to everybody's heart tones and you need to listen to everybody's lung sounds because you need to understand what normal is, right? So it makes no difference if it's knee pain, listen to their heart, listen to their lungs. You're going to know what normal is. And then all of a sudden, when you hear something that you may not know, and you go to the doc and say, doc, there's something in the heart that I don't know what that is, or there's something in the lungs. I'm not familiar with that. You've now just taught yourself what an S3 gallop is, or you've now just taught yourself what Ronchi is. And this is really a way for you to get into this process to say, I know it's not normal, but what is it? But today we have got a great show. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited. We are going to talk to Dr. Adam Saltman. He is the CMO for Echo Health. And we had the opportunity to be sponsored by Echo Health and the core stethoscope. And Dr. Saltman is really going to kind of take us to the understanding of heart sounds and lung sounds during this show. And I think I'm really excited about this. But first, you know, Doc, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us here on Inside EMS. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a real honor. And I'm sure you can recognize who the number one leader. No, I don't want to go there. So that's it's all right. We'll, we'll we can, we can know what the, the number one motor mouth is. Okay. Sure. Yeah. That's where we're going to go. I guess I shouldn't have had the Coke before we started, but you know, so doc, you know, you heard the setup, right? I mean, when we think about this heart sounds and lung sounds, it's one of those things that I think give trepidation to a lot of the EMS providers because they don't really understand it. In my course of being a clinical director, being an FTO, I used to teach people what heart talent, 
heart tones would sound like. I used to make them stick their finger in their ear and I would tap on their fingers so they would be able to he hear and understand. But they, they don't really understand the importance of this. And, and, you know, I've said it before, you know, somebody may not have, you know, CHF, but if they have an S3 Gallup, it's something you need to kind of keep tabs on now. But how important is listening to heart sounds and listening to lung sounds and really kind of understanding that process? Well, I, I mean, I am very biased in the answer because I was a cardiac surgeon once upon a time and uh, listening to heart and lung sounds is critical to, you know, excuse the pun, but it's very, very important uh, to figure out what's going on with your patient and even to making timely interventions on patients, which first line, you know, frontline providers like paramedics have to do. Uh, you can do uh, life-saving maneuvers by listening and making the diagnosis. And so I think that over the years, as we have gotten used to advanced technologies, uh, echocardiography and CT scanning and all those things, we've kind of gotten lazy uh, all around the medical profession. Indeed. And, you know, the stethoscope has become kind of a decoration that people just wear to say, hey, I'm a medical professional, but they've lost a lot of the skills in actually using it. Um, my, my residents used to make fun of me when I would have a stethoscope in my pocket and I would go to the bedside and I would teach them pathology, just like you cited yourself, you know, teaching them pathology. But unless they use it and keep their skills up, they're going to get kind of, you know, shy and, and kind of nervous and kind of insecure. And if you practice that skill, you'll keep it up. So I think it's incredibly important. You know, and, and Doc, you stole my thunder with your response, because I was going to say that, that you know, I, I a number of, of medical uh, thought leaders and, and pundits who I respect for the most part have said that very thing, that stethoscopy is dead and that there's nothing that you can do with the stethoscope that you can't do better with something that is uh, hideously expensive and complicated, <laughs> but may be more accurate, but, but also hideously expensive and complicated. And, and I, I always, my pushback was, is, is yeah, but I'm a paramedic <laughs> and I don't have echocardiography and, and we're getting ultrasound, you know, but, but uh, we still, most of us, uh, and, and even still in hospital emergency departments, um, uh, still rely on clinical assessment. And, you know, I was taught that, that uh, and, and I've always heard that that stethoscope draped around your neck or in your, your lab coat pocket. It's always kind of like uh, the badge of authority for a physician or a provider. Um, and when a patient, when you come into the room, one of the first things that they, you know, they expect from you is you to, to uh, uh, be concerned about their condition, introduce yourself and to listen to your chest or whatever with that stethoscope. Um, th that's a, that's a, a huge tool in developing the, the patient rapport. Um, you, you said that patients had, or that, that clinicians have gotten kind of lazy and, and over-reliant on, on technology. Uh, do, do clinicians still need to use that stethoscope extensively, even in the hospital setting, even when they have more, more advanced tools and technology? Is there any disincentive uh, to using that technology and, and incentive to use a stethoscope? Uh, that's a great question because, you know, one of the things that you can do is 
essentially monitoring a patient's condition by repeating your physical examination whenever you want, as often as you want, and tracking it in your own mind to see how that patient is doing. So for example, if I have a patient admitted to the hospital with, let's say, um, decompensated heart failure, and they can't breathe and they're fluid overloaded, and I listen to them, and I get a baseline examination in my mind. Chris mentioned the S3 gallop, right? Mm -hmm. So you keep that in your mind. You know, this patient was admitted, they had Rawls. Am I allowed to call it Rawls? I think we call it crackles nowadays. Um, they have Rawls and they have, um, you know, an S3 gallop and, you know, they have swollen extremities. And so you get a baseline and then the patient gets treated. And what am I going to do? Am I going to get an echocardiogram every day? No, no one's going to do that. But when you follow that patient with serial examinations, you then can make clinical decisions just with your stethoscope. And you can say that gallop is gone and the patient's rolls are gone. And, you know, then you, okay, you look at their pulse oximeter, but basically that's the only external piece of information you need outside of your stethoscope to say the patient's better now and they can go home. And so it's that kind of thing. And even if you're doing care um, in the ambulance or in an acute setting where you may give a medication response is very quick. I mean, response to IV Lasix is really fast and you see patients get relief almost immediately. And so you can listen to them and say, oh, their lung sounds are clearing up now. They don't have all these crackles and mm -hmm. things. So, you know, that is something that you don't even need to whip out your POCUS ultrasound. You can just listen. And I think that, you know, exercising those skills and understanding that and seeing, you know, hey, there's a change here you're doing your clinical skills and it didn't cost you a dime of equipment. So I think it's very powerful. Yeah. I have to agree with you. And I, I love the way how you put that. Yeah. But let's go ahead and get into the weeds here. I mean, so, you know, you're a, you know, you have the extensive background in cardiology and, you know, in teaching this to, to residents, I want to try to, you know, uh, you know, and, and thinking about the EMT that's out there as well, because it's important that they get to listen to heart sounds and lung sound. I mean, what are they going to do with it? It's information that they can pass off. It's information that they can get comfortable with. A majority of the people who are EMTs are going to go to paramedic school, or they may become nurses, or they may become doctors, and we encourage everybody to do that, right? So I, I do want to talk specifically about heart sounds, and I want you to kind of give us a little bit of maybe uh, an understanding of the practice of what we're supposed to listen for, right? So we all know the love dub. I mean, the love dub, you can't get away from. And as a paramedic, I've listened to my own heart. When my daughter was born just a couple of days old, I remember her laying on my chest and looking at her like, oh my God, you're going to give me so much heartache growing when you grow up. But I, I would put my stethoscope on her back and I would listen to her little heartbeat for the pediatric experience. I bought her. She was mine. I could do what I want with her, right? So, but kind of give us a little bit of what uh, S1 and S2, and then let's talk about S3 and S4 as to what you're listening for exactly, because I think this is where people have some challenge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, part of the challenge, you know, before I get into a little details is just having the richness of pathology. I mean, you need to have some of these abnormal things and they're not that common. So, uh, you know, if you do hear one of them really spend the time to listen and listen and, you know, get it kind of burned into your brain, you know, what an S3 sounds like. But for me, I think that if you're examining a patient and you're trying to really kind of get that skill down and then get it ingrained in your mind, 
don't just listen to the sound, use your other senses as well. So by that, I mean, put your finger on the pulse, listen to the sound while your finger's on the pulse. And you know, when you hear the pulse that the heart's contracting. So the S1 sound comes before the pulse, the S2 sound comes when the pulse is over when it's done, right? So, you know, the heart's contracting and then relaxing. And we're taught to analyze the heart rate. So that's easy to do. You listen to the love dub and you count it against your watch. You then can listen to the rhythm. And I mean, literally listen to the rhythm. Is it happening regularly? Or is it, you know, love dub and then a pause and then a bunch of love dubs in a row and then another pause? Mm -hmm. Well, you've almost, almost established the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation just by listening. You didn't even need to get that ECG yet, right? So, you know, there are lots of ways that you can uh, educate yourself and you can figure out what you're listening to and just spend the time, you know, do 10 beats, 20 beats, I don't, 100 beats, whatever you want to do. And you pointed out something interesting, Chris, which is that babies have a much faster heart rate. And that's something you really need to spend time listening to because, wow, it almost all mushes together. The sounds are almost, you know, love, 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 love. It's like you can't even sort it out. So put your finger on the pulse, listen, get the timing. You know, it's almost a little musical, right? It's almost like music. And so you listen to it, you know, what's the rhythm? And even then you can come up with all kinds of uh, diagnoses. And then if there's an extra one stuck in there, like S3, and uh, what I was taught was S3 sounds like Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky. So you hear the S1 and then the extra sound, Kentucky, like that. And so if you're hearing it, and I have heard it, you know, it's like Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky. And then you say, oh, that's where the S3 fits. And then, you know, I mean, it's not a normal sound. It shouldn't be there. But then you learn it and you memorize it. And so the next patient you hear with it, you'll be like, oh, I heard this before. This sounds like Kentucky. This patient must have an S3. They must be in heart failure. And now you've got a diagnosis and you pass it on, like you said, you know, to the doc in the ER that's waiting for you or, or whatever, you know, you put it in the chart, whatever you know, you're going to use to transmit information. You know, that, that is, that S3 heart sound is, is one of the, the cardinal signs I teach students to look for in, in decompensated heart failure or, or heart failure in general. Uh, and, and the ironic thing is I've rarely been able to hear it myself because I'm kind of hearing impaired. Um, uh, I, I thought that that I had hearing impairment in the uh, in the uh, higher frequencies uh, um, from too much shooting with with unprotected ears. Uh, but in recent years, I've discovered that that my hearing loss is across the spectrum, uh, and I've become somewhat of an intuitive lip reader. Uh, over the years. <laughs> and, and if you're talking to me and I can't see your face and see your lips move, I just smile and nod, smile and nod. Uh, but I find myself now with, with an amplified stethoscope, not having to, to metaphorically smile and nod. I can actually hear the things clearly that I could hear 20 years ago and haven't heard in 20 years because my ears have sucked. Uh, I can pick out Karotkov sounds over the sound of a power stroke diesel engine. It's awesome. Wow. Uh, Great. And we, Great. we, we, I tell my students all the time that, that you have a scope of practice. You do not have a scope of knowledge and there is never anything negative you can say about knowing more about a patient, uh, both their history uh, and whatever assessment data you can you can find. Uh, the only problem is is um, newer stethoscope technology has taken away some of my tips and tricks and my in my bag of tricks that I used to use because I couldn't hear 
things. Let's talk about lung sounds for a minute. Uh, sure. it, it never fails to, to uh, amaze me how few clinicians, newly educated clinicians, have a problem distinguishing between Rawls and wheezes. Uh, and 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 uh, distinguishing uh, the the pathophysiology of expiratory versus inspiratory wheezes and strider and that sort of thing. Uh, do you do you see that sort of thing in in clinicians uh, today? Something that they've they've kind of gotten muddy in their understanding on. Yeah, I have seen that. I agree with you there. Uh, I am a little bit. Um, I guess uh, I, I don't know what the word is. I, I just have trouble understanding that from my perspective, because, you know, lung sounds are something I've listened to my entire career and I, I consider myself, you know, fairly expert at it, but it's something that to me, there's a clear difference between Rawls and, and Wheezes and Ronkai. Um, so I'm a little bit at a loss to explain why people can't seem to differentiate, but yes, I have seen that. Yeah. It puzzles me. I cringe when when a when a, a paramedic gives a handoff report to a physician or nurse and he describes their lungs as junky. I just <laughs> want to beat my head against the wall, and go like, "Oh God, please no, don't say that." Yes. That uh, is a pet peeve of mine too. I yeah, agree. know something specific about the patient, please. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's incredibly important from a from a differential diagnosis point of view. I mean, patients who have Rawls you know, they have one problem and patients who have wheezes have a completely different problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, treating them is, is completely different. So, you know, and that's something to know. If you have someone in your ambulance who has status asthmaticus, I mean, they're going to get one treatment and someone who's in florid heart failure, completely different. Yeah. Uh, and you can make that diagnosis just with your stethoscope. And, but lungs are more complicated than the heart. I know that sounds weird, but it, I think the lungs are more complicated because, it's not just what is the sound, it's where is it? Is it everywhere? Is it only in one place? Um, is it loud or is it soft? You know, is it all through the respiratory cycle or is it only during end expiration? You know, these are things that are very important in making the diagnosis and subsequent therapy. And so there's a lot of, a lot of other stuff that needs to go into lung exams um, than the heart exam. Maybe we can concentrate on that a little bit, but when you were saying that I had to laugh because when I was first, you know, learning how to listen to lung sounds, I had a patient in my ambulance and he says, you know, I, I have CHF and I have it really bad in the, in the lower lobes. And I feel like it's, it's causing me some distress and I'm looking at his EKG and it's like a normal sinus and I'm looking at his pulse and it's fine. And, you know, he's good on the pulse ox and I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to listen and I can't hear it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's diminished. And he's, he must be crashing. And well, he had a lung transplant, so he didn't have a lung on. So when you talk about that from the standpoint, I mean, he was just killing me with it and he was laughing afterwards. He's like, I do that to everybody. Don't worry. I'm like, well, stop it. But, um, but you talked about it from the standpoint of, you know, listening and, uh, you know, talking about where you're listening at, I mean, you could have clear bilaterally in the upper lobes and you can be, have uh, a congestive, uh, you know, pulmonary edema in the lower lobes and it's working its way up. And, you know, if you get complacent where you're just checking the upper lobes, uh, you know, you're going to have a problem, right? But one of the things that you talked about, you gave us some really, and the thing with the pulse, where you talked about, 
um, you know, feeling the pulse when you're listening to heart. I never, I never heard that before. I've never even thought uh, of doing that before, but you were correct. Either. You can, you can kind of figure out, you know, a fib without even hooking them up. Right. That's, that's really right. where the skill comes in now from the, uh, you know, the lung sounds and listening to, you know, putting your stethoscope on the chest and the back. Do you have any tips for that of how we can kind of learn that process and really kind of get that exam down from the lung standpoint? listening to the lung standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I kind of integrate them, actually. So what I do is, you know, I come from the right side of the patient, and I start out with the four standard cardiac locations. And then I stay, because uh, I'm right handed, so I'm from the right hand side. So I stay with those anterior lung sound areas first. And I always stay at the same horizontal level comparing the left side to the right side. And your lung transplant patient might have kind of given up the truth there uh, when you do that. But so I'll go, uh, you know, from the upper lung zone, left, I'll listen, right, I'll listen, then I'll go down to the mid zone, I'm already on the right side. So I stay on the right side, I do that first, then go to the left. And then I'll just literally swap the stethoscope to my left hand and automatically I'm at the patient's back. And so, you know, I don't even have to move, I stay in the same position. And I just go, uh, usually I go from the top to the bottom, but you can do whatever you want. But the point is just, you know, compare right to left, left to right before you go down a level, stay at the same horizontal level, and then go down a level and down another level and down another level. Um, and that's the way I do my exam. And, uh, you know, it really helps me because when patients have diminished sounds, like I know it's at the right base and the left base is fine yeah. and, you know, that sort of thing. So, uh, it really, really helps me when I'm sitting and writing it out, diminish sounds at the right base, you know, I know, you know, or I'll say dullness up to a certain level, you know, that kind of thing. So I hope that answered your question there. Yeah. You know, I, I think whichever way you do it, the more important thing is to have a process, you know, Absolutely. have a process, have a sequence. Uh, everyone kind of approaches their, their assessment, uh, a, a little differently, but as long as you're consistent to your process, you can organize your, your thoughts and that sort of thing. I've always taught my students, you know, like, uh, confirming lung sounds post intubation, uh, that you need to auscultate it at least, uh, for at least six breaths. You know, you start over the epigastrum and then you work your way up uh, from the bases to the apexes, right to left, and you work your way up. And by the time you've worked your way up, now it's time to check the CO2, uh, the, the CO2 detection, because you've delivered a good six breaths through the bag. Um, uh, <laughs> but what I was struck by when you were talking about your process is, is the old joke about the, the orthopedist os auscultation point, yes. uh, where they put their, put their stethoscope in the middle of the chest so they can hear lung sounds, heart tones, and bowel sounds all in one place. <laughs> That's right. The orthopedic <laughs> triple point. You got it. Yeah. Um, Sorry to my orthopedic friends, but it's true. <laughs> well, you know what the orth the orthopedist law of the heart, uh, the heart is that organ in the chest whose purpose is to pump and saft to the bones. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it. so it, it's it. really interesting when we talk about this and it's one of those skills that, uh, I think are lost, as you mentioned, but it's one that we try to teach as much as we can. And I'm glad you're here. You know, there, there have, we've been taught as paramedics that we shouldn't listen to the carotid arteries, right? Because there are things that you can, you know, if there's any plaque that's in there, we can dislodge and dislodge so on. Your... Yeah. But yeah. when you think about that, um, from a 
just a clinical standpoint from a doctor's standpoint, what's the importance of hearing that, that crackling that's going on or that turbulent the movement that's in the carotid arteries? Yeah. Oh, it's very important. I was actually, when I was uh, preparing for this podcast, I was writing down some thoughts about uh, the way patients might present and how the physical exam with the stethoscope is so important and altered mental status, like a stroke is something that I put down right at the top of my list because you know, you listen to the heart and like we talked earlier, you could pick up atrial fibrillation, a very common cause of a stroke. You can also pick up murmurs, which, you know, could portend endocarditis or other valve disease that could cause a stroke. You go up and you listen to the neck and you hear a carotid brewery, which can cause a stroke. I mean, so I was thinking along those lines and as far as listening to the carotid, well, you know, don't smash on the carotid. Don't, you know, you, you don't have to do that to hear a brewery. As a matter of fact, you'll probably decrease the blood flow and, and you won't get a good brewery. So you just put the stethoscope on the neck, you know, you just put it on the neck gently. Um, there's no reason you're going to cause any problems with that. And you'll hear a brewery if there is turbulent blood flow. So I think it's actually a very important part of the exam. I make it part of all of my uh, routine exams. It takes you a few seconds and you go up there and you listen and you just put it gently on the neck and you know, one side and then the other, and you listen for a brewery. Um, yeah, I, I recommend it. I, I don't have any reservation about that. You know, it's, and, it, and it's not like you're, you know, just gently auscultating that you're putting the pressure on that you would put in when you do carotid sinus massage, you not know, and, and, and you rule out that brewery uh, and, and maybe carotid sinus massage becomes an option. Uh, uh, something you can, you can do if you ruled out a brewery. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, how, how much of the, of the decline in, in clinical skills, particularly stethoscopy, since that's what we're talking about, how much of that decline do you think uh, stems from the really poor tools and equipment we've had, you know, because on, on a typical ambulance uh, you learn that, that you leave your good stethoscope on the ambulance, it's going to grow legs and walk away. Yeah. Um, unless you sub, uh, inscribe it with, you know, stolen from Kelly Grayson is what's on mine. <laughs> um, and, and, and the ambulance, the, the EMS agencies know this. So they stock their bags with the, the Fisher price, my first stethoscope, uh, or, or a spray Grappaport, and you can't hear squat through those. So, so is it any wonder that with, with the shoddy tools that we're given that we don't place, uh, you know, significant value uh, on the assessment data that we derive from them. Yeah, I agree with that completely because, you know, when we, uh, the vision behind the company that I work for, Echo, is really to build these artificial intelligence algorithms to help people make diagnoses you need good data to go into them to mm -hmm. make good, you know, so we had to build a really top, you know, best in class hardware to get the best sound. Otherwise, if you use that Fisher Price stethoscope, you can't, you know, it's what they say in computer land, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, you go. Um, so, you know, you need to have really high fidelity equipment uh, just to make what we're trying to build possible. And, you know, the, the happy side effect is you have an amazing piece of hardware. So, you know, the ability to amplify the sound and you mentioned your hearing loss. So that's definitely an advantage there, but, you know, being in noisy environments like emergency rooms and ICUs and ambulances and, 
you know, you can't hear very well. And so having uh, amplification, having noise cancellation is like, when I first listened to the stethoscope we make, I was blown away. I was like, this is amazing. And I had a Littman cardiology four for years until someone stole it from me, as you exactly said, yeah. I left outside the operating room one day, I came back, it was gone. Um, and by the way, it had my name on it. So I'm not sure that works. Oh, was that yours, Doc? Was let me get that in the mail to you. I, I thought it, I thought it was mine. Yeah. All right, I'm getting in the car and coming over. Um, but basically, uh, you know, that was a great stethoscope. But you're right. I mean, in a noisy situation, you can't hear very well. There's all kinds of distractions and beeps and buzzes and all kinds of stuff. So you really do need good equipment. Uh, the Sprague, the Sprague Rappaport is a stethoscope I hated because the tubes would rub together and I couldn't mm -hmm. tell what was going on. So yeah, you do need good equipment, uh, you know, to hear well. And then I think you get more interested instead of just throwing it down in disgust, you know? Yeah. You know, my, my favorite scope prior to the echo, uh, was was the doctor's research group pure tone um and and it was a great scope but i hear so much more with with the echo that i that i i have in the past and uh it's kind of been my my go-to um uh to the point where I've, I've i've been able to abandon some of my my old practices you know i used to uh i used to uh assess uh tactile frimitus when when i couldn't hear you know, and palpate someone's chest and feel for vibrations when I couldn't hear to see if I, if maybe there was some some uh, a uh, an area of, of uh, condens uh, uh, condensation or if there was a a, a a pneumo or something. Now I don't have to do that. Um, I still do my my auscultatory uh, percussion, uh, checking out uh, long bone fractures, but. So, Doc, I think this has been a really great educational show, and, and we really try to bring the best education that we can. So when we think about this from the, you know, the Echo Health core stethoscope side, I mean, this really is one of the uh, uh, best tools that we have in our, um, you know, that we can get for ourselves. And when we think about this, you know, the amplification, are there any other qualities that it has that could really help benefit the paramedic and the EMT really to... Uh, you know, to kind of do their job, manage and treat the, the patients we see. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the really significant advantages of having a digital stethoscope is, is we covered, you know, amplification and we covered, mm -hmm. but being able to visualize what you are listening to is something that we probably all saw it when we were first starting out in this profession, but it's something we've lost. We've never looked at again. And that's really the visual display of the heart sounds. Um, lung sounds is not that useful, but the heart sounds definitely. So for that, I'm talking about phonocardiography. And you can see that on your smartphone, which you can connect to our echo stethoscopes. And what you see is a tracing of the sound you're hearing over time. And so you see the S1, you see a big deflection, and then you see a little quiet area, and then you see another big deflection, which is the S2. And if a patient has a murmur, you'll see that abnormal sound, instead of a quiet area, you'll see a noisy area. And depending on where you see it, if it's between S1 and S2, then you know it's a systolic murmur. If it's between S2 and S1, you know, it's a diastolic murmur. Uh, you can even look at the characteristic of it. Does it rise and fall or is it steady? Um, you know, you can tell a lot from that. 
like aortic valve stenosis versus mitral regurgitation. You can, you can pick hmm. those out. Does it help you pick the classification of murmur as well then? If you're seeing it, are you able now to classify the murmur? Yes, you can. Yeah, interesting. Um, it is. And we're building algorithms to do that, you know, through uh, artificial intelligence. But you just need to practice that as a regular old human. And you can look at it and study it and say, wow, that's an S3 because you'll see the extra sound in the recording. Um, or that is an aortic stenosis murmur because... It's systolic and it peaks and then de there's a decrescendo. So, you know, you go back, you go back to those old dusty textbooks and you look at those <laughs> recordings and you say, wow, I saw that today uh, on my smartphone. And so it's very educational. And, you know, I mean, it's not difficult to get to the point where you can actually diagnose the disease from the phonocardiogram. You know, and, and that is, that's that's heartening because you know we we have ai that that uh well i don't know if it was developed with ai but we have interpretation algorithms for things like 12 lead kgs uh that some people rely on too much but but are are helpful uh and interpretation algorithms for heart and lung sounds uh would be yet another uh useful useful addition to our repertoire and i i did not know that echo was working on on that technology that's that's nice to know um but i think we can all agree that uh the better your assessment uh the better the tools you have at your disposal uh the better and more valuable your assessment is going to be but hey that's what we think and we'd like to hear what you think do you use an amplified stethoscope? Uh, how important is stethoscopy to your clinical practice? Give us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com uh, and rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Ciballero, and our special guest this week, Dr. Adam Saltman with Echo Health. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. <laughs>